0: Before we get into the word, I want to take just a moment and pray for our sister church in Peru, Jesus El Camino. Um, One of their main leaders, Juan Carlos, passed away from COVID uh, very quickly after he got sick, relatively quickly after he got sick, and that's going to be a big... um, time of grief for the church and loss, and they're very close, and that's a faithful family uh, in the church. So I just want to go to the Lord and ask the Lord's grace for them uh, during this time and uh, for Pastor Elher and Cynthia as they minister to the family. Father, we thank you for the mission partnership we have in Peru. We uh, long to get back down there in the midst of all that has gone on. And, Lord, we grieve today with the church and the loss of Juan Carlos. And uh, we pray, Lord, that even now as you have received him into your presence, his family is grieving as well as the church. We know it's uh, going to be a difficult time for them. We lift up Pastor Hare and Cynthia to you as they minister to the family and to the church family. Uh, in a time of loss. We thank you that we don't grieve as those who have no hope, uh, but at the same time we realize how brief life is and how important it is that we be ready to meet with you. We thank you for this brother who has always been an encouragement to us when we've been there, his welcoming and his smile and his warmth, his service to you, And while we don't understand uh, all of this, we entrust it to you, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring comfort and strength to the family and to the church, and that we would continue to pray for them in the days ahead. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10, and we're going to look together today at verses 6 through 21. In a message entitled, Life on Mission. In our current series so far, we have focused on life in the Spirit from Ephesians chapter 5 and what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to live a life that is surrendered to God's presence and purpose for us, to walk carefully as wise people, making the most of the time because the days are evil, understanding what the will of the Lord is. Second, we considered what it means to live life as a disciple from Acts chapter 14 A disciple of Jesus is a learner, one who is willing to follow Jesus and wants to be like him. And we looked at the New Testament pattern for the making of disciples in that the gospel is proclaimed, people believe in Jesus, they gather together and grow together in the church. And if we're disciples of Jesus, that means that we're in Christ and we are abiding in and imitating him in our lives. Then the emphasis was on life in the church, and we looked at how Christ is the head of the church. He's the one that we follow uh, for his authority as disciples. We're a part of the church, and then we're a part of the body is the illustration that the Scripture gives us in part. And each of us are to fulfill the role that we have that's been given to us by God, uh, carrying out the ministry and the work of God's church. And then last, Pastor Brandon preached On life in community and how we are brought into community through the good news when we repent and believe in Jesus and that the good news is the foundation of community. Uh, Love bonds us together as the people of God in community and faith guides us as we seek to live for the Lord. So today we're going to conclude with this subject, life on mission. We're going to think about what it means to live life on mission as a disciple of Jesus and what it means to bring other people to faith in him. Now we're going to pick up in what seems a little bit midstream in verse six, but I'll come back and give you some context uh, before I'm done. Romans chapter 10 and verse six says, but the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ But I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. And now verse 21. But to Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul lays out the case for salvation. He makes it abundantly clear that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He addresses the issue of justification by faith or how a person is declared righteous in the sight of God and has right standing before him. And then he compares, uh, to some degree, the law and the grace of God and the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, this particular passage is in the context of the apostle referencing Israel, his people, and the law, and how they would obtain righteousness. You remember Israel tried to become righteous before God in the wrong way by relying on their own attempts of keeping the law, which they failed. For the most part, they had refused to come to faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And Paul prayed that Israel would be saved. And then he points out how anybody can be saved, whether Jew or Gentile. So let's think for a few moments together about what life on mission looks like. And we went through a study some time ago actually entitled Life on Mission. Those of you who have been around for a while might remember that discipleship study. It opens with these words. The heartbeat of God is that he would be worshipped among all peoples. God desires that all people worship him and give him the glory that is due his name. And then it references Psalm 46 and verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Each of us as followers of Jesus are to live life on mission where God has placed us. The reality of the Christian life is that it is very easy to get distracted and to be consumed with the everyday responsibilities that we have. Sometimes we ask ourselves the question, Are we really living life on mission? And is my life truly counting for the glory of God? So when we speak of life on mission, this is extremely practical because it relates to everyday life and what a Christian is to be about. We join God in his mission as his disciples through the work of his church, empowered by the spirit to make Jesus Christ known. The first truth that I want to show you in this passage is that life on mission understands that there is a message to be shared. There's a message to be shared. We pick up really in verse 8 as he begins to build the argument and goes all the way through verse 13, which really comprises the, the conclusion of the matter. And the message of the good news is both simple and it's profound. It's simple in the sense that even a child can understand the basics of the good news. I came to faith in Christ when I was only seven years old, and I was baptized shortly after that as a public profession of my faith. And I'm thankful that the good news about Jesus is simple enough for a child to understand. But it's also profound in the sense that it Plumbs the depths of eternity itself, and in verse eight, there's a reference that is made to Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses was reestablishing the covenant with the second generation of the Israelites out of Egypt. They were standing, as it were, on the precipice of the promised land. The older generation had died out in the wilderness the younger generation was given the opportunity to enter into the promised land. They were in covenant with the Lord and were supposed to be living as the covenant people of God. And Moses wanted them to understand that pleasing God from knowing God was not beyond their reach. It was accessible to them. And What that reminds us of is that salvation has always been of faith. When Paul builds that argument back in Romans chapter 3 about justification by faith and then he discusses how it was that Abraham came to know God and he emphatically speaks to the point that the only way to be justified is through the blood of Jesus. He reminds us that salvation has always been of faith and even though people have looked in a lot of places to find right standing with God, the only way to God is is through Christ the Son. So the message is near you, and anyone uh, who wants to know God needs to accept that message. And I think it's striking that the answer to eternity is not in a faraway place. Philosophers have talked about it. People have come up with all sorts of ideas about it. Religions have been built on it. And yet eternity is not in a faraway place. Paul says, It is near you. You can access a relationship with God because he has made himself known to you. And the message is in your mouth and it should be in your heart because it's within grasp for anybody who wants to receive it. Now you'll note this word confess in verse 9. To confess means to say the same thing about something as someone else says. So here it means saying the same thing about Jesus Christ as God the Father does. At the foundation of the message is the truth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord was one of the most common and straightforward expressions by which believers confess their faith. We find it multiple times in the scripture in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, it says, therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. First Corinthians 8 and verse 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, uh, for whom are all things, and we are for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. And then First Corinthians 12 and verse 3. Therefore, I am informing you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So this designation of Lord indicates someone with authority. Generally speaking, someone who was referred to in that way was to be respected. But after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the title Lord meant more than just a designation of honor or respect. It was a way of declaring the deity of Jesus. Just as Thomas the disciple uh, exclaimed, my Lord and my God. So let's think about it this way. To say Jesus is Lord is the equivalent of saying Jesus is God. It is a majestic title communicating the sovereignty and the power of Jesus. Over in Philippians chapter 2, Paul discusses the humiliation and the exaltation of God the Son, and he calls Jesus Lord in the highest sense. Lord in the name that is above every name. Jesus, of course, referred to himself as Lord many times. Lordship is at the heart of the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. A little bit later in Romans chapter 14, and verse 8 and 9, he says, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. I'm reminded of the story from church history and the life of Polycarp. Polycarp, at the age of 86, was the second century bishop of Smyrna, and was also known as a disciple of the Apostle John. He was brought before the Roman authorities, and they demanded that he confess that Caesar was Lord. Polycarp refused, and it cost him his life. He inspired others to remain faithful. And did you know that around the world today, there are many people who live under the oppression of persecution simply because of their Christian faith. And under that persecution, they're often challenged to deny the Lord and to disobey the Lord by not confessing him as who he is to them. And we're reminded that their faithfulness is the same as Polycarp's faithfulness was. And they too are inspiring to us, of what it means to believe that Jesus is Lord. Now also at the heart of the message is that God raised Jesus from the dead. The fact that Jesus is Lord, both God and Savior, was evident when he rose from the dead. So think about it this way. Jesus' resurrection was the proof that he was the Messiah. The resurrection of Jesus was the evidence that he is God's holy one. Ephesians chapter one in verse 20 and 21 says, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So Jesus is Lord. He was God in the flesh. He was crucified for our sins he was buried in a borrowed tomb, he was raised from the dead, and when we confess him as Lord, we are also confessing that God raised him from the dead as an authentication of who he is. Now, as my good friend Matt Queen likes to say, if you know enough gospel to be saved by it, you know enough to share it. So if you've been saved by the good news, if you've been saved by Jesus, then you know enough about this message that God has called us to share. We need to know the good news because there's a message to be shared. The second truth is that life on mission understands the message to be shared is taken by people who are sent. It's taken by people who are sent. Look in verse 14 and verse 15. There is a series of questions here. Now, you know how a chain is linked together and one link of a chain relates to the next link of the chain, which relates to the next link of the chain, and altogether those links comprise the entirety of the chain. We've sort of got a chain of logic here uh, where each one bears a close relationship to the preceding link. And interestingly, it goes from effect to cause. So here it is. Calling upon Christ in prayer is mentioned first, though in reality it follows, having faith in him. Having faith in Christ results from hearing him. Hearing implies that there must have been a preacher who addressed the people, and he did this even earlier because someone had authorized him to bring the message. So we're thinking about preaching, we're essentially talking about proclaiming something. And what's being proclaimed here is the good news about Jesus that has been initiated by God. Now, God could have used, used any means he wanted to for the communication of the good news of salvation, but God's normal way of bringing people to faith in Jesus is through people opening their mouths and telling other people about the good news. It could be in a formal setting like what we're in here today. It could be in a small group setting where people are communicating about the love of Jesus. It could be in a home setting where a mother or a father is sharing with their child. It could be in a vocational setting where one coworker is sharing with another coworker. It could be in a mission setting where we've gone all the way to the ends of the earth and we're speaking with someone about the good news. The point is the message has to be clearly proclaimed so that people can hear about Jesus and be saved. I'm reminded of the story in the Old Testament of the mercy and the loving kindness of God, where uh, God had determined that He was going to save the inhabitants of Nineveh if they would turn from their sin and turn to Him. And you remember, God appointed a, a preacher to go and take the message, but that preacher, Jonah, believed that the people didn't deserve mercy, but rather they deserved punishment. Who could blame Jonah? Because other prophets had spoken ill of Nineveh and the moral corruption there. But yet God told Jonah that he was to go to Nineveh and to cry out against it. That's a phrase which scholars understand as preaching or proclaiming the intentions of God. So Jonah received a direct command, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So the church in turn, has been given the word and the ministry of reconciliation, and we're given a charge throughout the entirety of the New Testament to proclaim the gospel so that spiritually dead people can come alive. Now, you notice this designation here of the feet of those who share the good news. I'm going to come back to that a little bit more in depth at the end of the message, but I do want to make reference to it here. It's a reference from Isaiah 52 and verse 7 of someone who would bring good news. Uh, and the feet of those who bring the good news of the message of the gospel actually are partnering with God for the salvation of the lost. And I think today, sometimes when we think about the word missionary in the context of the mission of God, uh, there's a little bit of confusion about what a missionary is or what a missionary does. The word mission and missionary that we use in our English language comes from a root word which means literally to be sent or one who is sent. So in the most strict form of that meaning, uh, we would think about a missionary as being someone who is called of God to leave their culture and to go to another culture to learn the language, to learn the context, to learn the culture, and to invest their lives in sharing the gospel, seeing people come to faith, churches being planted, and the mission advancing. And that would be what we would refer to in a more strict sense of being a missionary. Sometimes people say everybody's a missionary. Everybody's a Christian, is a missionary. That is true in the sense that we all have been called to live sent lives. We've not all necessarily been called to uproot and to move to the ends of the earth, But the church as a whole has been called to be faithful in taking the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that means that some people are going to invest the entirety of their lives in it, and other people are going to give and pray and go and invest their lives in seeing the message of the gospel go forth. So some are called in a more specific sense, and then all of us are called in a general sense to live in a way that is sent in order to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We need to go with the good news because there is a message to be shared. And then there's a third truth I want to show you here, and that is life on mission understands that the message shared by people who are sent is believed by faith. Now, you'll note here, starting in verse 1, repeated again in verse 9 and 10, and then once again in verse 13, Are the words saved or salvation? And those are important words because it's speaking specifically about what happens to a person when they actually believe who Jesus is and what he's done. And we're given a logical sequence by Paul of a lost person coming to faith in Jesus, but it's presented, in a sense, in a reverse order. Messengers have to proclaim the message about Jesus People have to hear the message about Jesus, and then saving faith is exercised as people believe what God has said through his word and through his messengers. So in the flow of the discussion here, he speaks to us about the confession of faith that is made, and then what he does is he backs up and he tells us how the message got there to begin with, what the message is comprised of, and what happens when people are confronted with it. Now, we ask the question, if salvation is so clear, if it's available to all who will trust in Jesus, then why did not all the people believe the report? In fact, he says here in verse 16 specifically, they've not all obeyed the gospel. Why is it that not everybody believes? If it's on your mouth and it's in your heart and it's nearby and it's accessible for anybody who wants to hear it, why do people not believe the bottom line reason why people don't believe is because of the blindness in their heart that comes from sin and their own unwillingness to receive the message of the gospel and believe. It's because of the hardness of the human heart that people reject the gospel. So we asked in verse 18, "Did they not hear?" Well, yeah, they, they heard. They heard because their voice has gone out to the whole earth. Their words were to the ends of the world. This is a quotation from Psalm 19 in verse 4 concerning the general revelation of God. The psalm also discusses God's special revelation in the Old Testament uh, along about verse 7 and following. I'd encourage you sometime just by way of a Bible study to go back and look at Romans 10 and look at all of the different specific Old Testament references as well as the allusions to the Old Testament. And here's in part what that teaches us. This is one unified message. Paul was not coming up with something that was new. He's just putting the pieces together. And he's explaining to us the progressive revelation of God, of how God had chosen to make himself known to the world. And the the preeminent way that he made himself known to the world was through his only son. And he's building that argument. So go back and read that sometime, all of these Old Testament references that we find here. Now, some of Israel would believe as uh, God held out his hands uh, to them and extended the message. Uh, Furthermore, it's clear here that the message was never intended to be contained with the Jews. It was intended to go to the Gentiles. Now, Now, watch this, because in the Old Testament, the Bible makes it clear that God called Abraham out, Uh, He was going to make of him a great nation. Through that great nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It would be through that nation that the Messiah would come, the Lord Jesus. So God's intent was that he would have a special people for himself in Israel. Some of them would believe, some of them would not believe, but the message would be made known to them. And then through them, specifically through the Messiah and the proclamation of the Messiah, people to the ends of the earth would be saved. So it wouldn't just be the Jews, it would be be Gentiles as well. And you'll notice the reference here in verse 20. I was found by those who were not looking for me, and I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. God was making himself known. Faith depends on hearing, understanding, and accepting the message. The Reformers in the Protestant Reformation spoke of three aspects of faith. They spoke first of recognition of the truth claims of the gospel. They spoke second of acknowledgement of the truth claims of the gospel and their exact correspondence to our spiritual need. They spoke third of a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, who by virtue of his death and his resurrection provides the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins and the way to God. So in that saving faith... It's recognizing the truth, acknowledging that that truth applies to us as sinners, and then personally committing ourselves to the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to make this point clear. This is very important. Any of these aspects of faith taken by themselves are insufficient for saving faith. But all of them taken together make up what saving faith is. So in other words, you could say, yes, I think that the truth claims of the gospel are in fact true, and yet that not comprise saving faith. You could even say, yes, I believe that the truth claims of the gospel are what they are, and yes, I believe that I am a sinner, and yet not personally believe and commit. That would not be saving faith. But recognizing the truth understanding that it applies to your life individually, and then coming to faith in Jesus, that's what saving faith is. And the message of the good news brings with it the responsibility to accept its offer, and then when we have accepted the offer of the good news, to take it to others. So I'd say that those who are sent operate under a higher authority, the authority of God in that God has sent every follower of Jesus to proclaim the message of the good news to those who are lost. Now, I told you I was going to come back to this idea of beautiful feet at the end of the message, and here we are. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. In ancient times, good news traveled by means of messengers who ran from one place to the other. Uh, When an army marched off to war, Nobody knew for months at times how that battle had gone or where they had gone. People didn't have cell phones. They couldn't turn on the television and and see the ticker running across there to give them real-time news about whatever was happening. We couldn't communicate instantly by an app or by a text to someone who's on the other side of the world. None of those things were present. So everything depended on a messenger. And those messengers would take the message of whatever the situation was and they would bring it back. So when they saw those messengers coming over the top of that mountain and heading down into their village or down into their city, it was one of two things. It was either good news and they were going to rejoice in that or it was bad news and they were going to mourn over it. And what the scripture is telling us here is that the message of the uh, truth about Jesus is good news. And those who bring it have beautiful feet. In that God has entrusted to us the words of life. He's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So that tells us that we start where we are and then we go to the ends of the earth. That means that faithful living begins with sharing the message where you are. So I want you to think about it this way. It starts with your location. That's wherever you are. Whether it's here or some far-flung place Uh, to the ends of the earth. It involves your vocation. So the place where you spend so much of your time is an opportunity to share with other people about what God has done and is doing in your life. If you're not yet to that place where you've got a vocation, you're a student, then it involves your education because you're spending so much time around other people, many of whom don't know anything about the gospel. And then it includes your recreation, those things that you like to do where you spend your extra time. There are people all around you who don't know the Lord. So I want to encourage you to look around you and learn your context spiritually. Think like you're a person who's living life on mission. Love people where they are and be bold in the opportunities God gives you to share. Pray for God to work through your witness that people would have ears to hear and hearts to understand that they would want to know about the love of God in Christ and then go with that message of the good news. And we want to be a people who make disciples as we're going and we want to be obedient to the great commission. And if a church is not centered on primarily what life on mission is about, there's no reason for us to exist You understand that God saved us, and he saved us for his glory. He brought us into a relationship with him. He gives us the privilege of being able to share about that relationship with others, and he brings other people to know him, and he gets the glory, and his church moves forward. But we're not moving forward towards nothing. We're moving forward towards eternity, and that eternity is in the very presence of Jesus himself who lived and died and now lives again. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment as we pray and we come toward the close of the service. I don't know where you are spiritually today, uh, but if you have faith in Jesus and your life is with Christ, I want to challenge you to ask the Lord to help you think about what life on mission truly looks like. It may be that God calls out some young people from our midst who Uh, sense that call to the nations to go plant themselves cross-culturally, to say yes to the call of God, uh, just like Paul did, and to go and take the message to the darkest of places. But he's calling all of us where we are to live faithfully on mission. Are you doing that now, Christian? Are there ways that you can strengthen your life with God so that you can be a blessing to others? And then I know enough to know that in a crowd this size, and whether here in the room or watching online, that there's some folks who have not yet exercised saving faith. You've heard the message. You've heard it here this morning as we've gathered together. It is near to you, but it has to be believed. And God is calling you to himself. You say, well, how can I take that step of faith, pastor? By understanding that God is holy and that we're all sinners, By understanding there was no way that you could save yourself or achieve forgiveness in some way or get right standing with God by good works or religion or anything else. It's only through Jesus. And today, if you'd be willing to say, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die and to now live again so that my sins could be forgiven and I could be right with you. God, will you save my soul? I am coming today to follow Jesus. God will hear that prayer of repentance and faith, and he'll welcome you into his everlasting family. God, we thank you today for the simplicity and also just how profound this gospel message is. I pray that each one of us would be prepared for eternity and that in our lives we would live in a way that honors you, a life that is on mission, that is seeking to bring other people to be on mission for Jesus. We pray that we would see many, many more people come to faith and be baptized and walk on that path of discipleship so that Jesus would get the glory and someday we'll all be together in heaven with you. And we pray your blessings on all of this and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Eric's going to sing with us.